Good morning again, everybody. How's it going? <laughs> That's always funny when I do. All right. Uh, a few months ago, for book club, the book club that Holly and I host at our house uh, every month, we read we read the book Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren, which is a really wonderful book. And it what it does is it connects the the sort of mundane acts of normal life that we all do every day, and it connects them with the sacraments and the various elements of the Christian liturgy. And the first chapter of the book was on the topic of baptism, which she connects to waking up in the morning. The the title of the chapter is Waking, Baptism, and Learning to Be Beloved. And in it, she talks about how in her Anglican tradition, they do infant baptisms. And of this, she says this, Baptism is the first word of grace spoken over us by the church. In my tradition, Anglicanism, we baptize infants. Before they cognitively understand the story of Christ, before they can affirm a creed, before they can sit up, use the bathroom, or contribute significantly to the work of the church, grace is spoken over them, and they are accepted as part of us. They are counted as God's people before they have anything to show for themselves. Now, we mainly in the 14, almost 14 years of our church, just because of our own past experiences and and traditions, we have done mostly believer baptism, which means something to the effect of when someone reaches a certain age, the age of accountability or choice or whatever language you want to put at it, they can choose to get baptized, and then that's when you baptize. And this personal choice element of faith, of baptism, is a really, really important thing, and it is good. But I also think that she made a great case for the beauty and the value of infant baptism as well. Though choice is always important, this faith journey always begins with grace, often before any of us are even fully consciously aware of it. I have a moment or even moments that I can point to that I say I made a conscious decision to begin following Jesus. But I also can look before those moments of conscious choice and see where God's fingerprints were already on my life, already nudging me and and organizing circumstances perhaps to lead me to those moments, to prepare the soil for me to arrive at those moments. The Bible often talks about the importance of making a personal choice to follow Jesus. In Luke 14, whoever, Jesus says this, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Jesus says things like this all the time. That sounds a lot like personal choice to me. But Jesus also says in John chapter six, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. There's always attention in scripture and in the life of faith in general between our conscious choice and choices and God's prompting, our agency 
and God's sovereignty. But I do think there's something uniquely beautiful about how Tish Harrison Warren articulated baptism fundamentally as a sign of grace. She goes on later in the chapter to say this. As Christians, we wake each morning as those who are baptized. We are united with Christ and the approval of the Father is spoken over us. We are marked from our waking moments by an identity that is given to us by grace, an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity we will don that day. My wet fingers dipped into the baptismal font remind me that everything I do in the liturgy, all the confessing and singing, kneeling and peace passing, distraction, boredom, ecstasy, devotion, is a response to God's work and God's initiation. And before we begin the liturgies of our day, the cooking, sitting in traffic, emailing, accomplishing, working, resting, we begin beloved. My works and my worship don't earn a thing. This is so important for us to always remember. And this is such a beautiful perspective on baptism. I so enjoyed reading it. But if we're all being honest, I think we can acknowledge this beautiful perspective and depiction of baptism is not everyone's experience nowadays. In that very book club, this chapter sparked a lot of conversation about baptism and about everyone's various experiences of baptism in the room. And what became really clear really quickly is that in our modern world, baptism is fraught. One person in the group shared how they were baptized years ago as an adult at a megachurch of sorts. And those person was initially excited about being baptized, the whole experience was ultimately cheapened by the process that they were forced to go through with said baptism. They had to sign a set of beliefs and a membership covenant for the church, which they were not 100% comfortable with, but felt like they had to. And, and then the actual baptism was done in a really public very ostentatious way that made this person feel more like a number rather than a person embarking on a journey or being embraced by a community. The whole experience just made this person feel like they sort of had to take a step away from baptism in general. It's almost like just give up on the idea to partition it off and make it something that they just didn't think about much anymore. Many of you probably have stories like this. Many of you may have worse stories than this. And what might be even more ubiquitous and more important than stories like that are all the anxious emotions that a lot of us have carried around throughout our lives, raised by all the sort of theological and mechanical questions related to baptism. In the first year of the church, we did a very short series on baptism and communion as two of the central sacraments. And in doing that, we did a bunch, of, well, a bunch, we did a bunch of research, just kind of asking people in the church about their experiences on baptism. And 
and what they think about it and what they've been taught about it. And there were basically two primary sets of questions that emerged out of all of those discussions. The first were questions on the nature of baptism. Is baptism symbolic primarily, or is it salvific in some way? Is it necessary for salvation? Does some sort of thing happen in baptism that paves the way for us to enter heaven one day? Is it just an outward symbol of an inward spiritual reality, or is it necessary for salvation? And then the other set of questions really had to do with the mechanisms of baptism. How were you baptized? Put another way, were you sprinkled or dunked? And apparently that really matters in a lot of traditions and to a lot of people. And a lot of anxiety is expended on that question. Or when were you baptized? Were you baptized as an infant or a child? Or were you baptized as an adult? And then finally, how does your baptism coincide with your conversion? Was it soon enough, immediate? Was it too far afterwards? I remember having one conversation. He was basically like, it comes down to were you sprinkled or dunked as a child or adult? And how close was it when you were proclaiming faith? If you get all three right, you're in good shape. If not, who knows? And that's how a lot of people feel. In other words, we have a lot of anxieties about getting it right in our culture, about doing baptism the right way, at the right time, through the right mechanisms, and having the right thoughts and beliefs about it. And as a result of all of these anxieties and sometimes negative or at least awkward experiences, a lot of Christians in our time just have to walk away from baptism out of a, self, a sense of self-preservation. We just don't talk about it or even think about it that much anymore. Which leads to a question, is there a better way? A better way to think about it in addition to a better way of doing it. Now today, as you may have noticed, our lectionary gospel text includes the story of Jesus's baptism again. And we actually just read this story not too terribly long ago. Um, on, during Epiphany, there's a day that's the baptism of Jesus day. And then we get the baptism here again at the beginning of Lent. So clearly, they're trying to bring our attention back to Jesus's baptism over and over. And so we wanted to make sure that we actually paid really close attention. Also, on Easter, it is a tradition for us to do baptisms for anyone who wants to be baptized. And we haven't done any for a couple of years, partly because the pandemic threw it off. We actually had like seven or eight people that were going to be baptized during the 2020 Easter celebration. And then we all know what happened there. But this year, again, we're going to do baptisms on Easter for those who want to be baptized. And so today we wanted to take this time and this opportunity to just talk about baptism explicitly and intentionally. And obviously, I'm going to be talking about it in here because I've already started doing that. But Curtis is off right now spending a few minutes with the youth talking about baptism, and he's going to go to the older elementary kids as well and talk about baptism. And don't worry, we're not trying to like, you know, pressure anybody into getting baptized, but he just is going to give them some general information and ask questions so that they're included in this conversation as well. 
Now, since we're going to talk about baptism today, by the way, is everybody excited? We're talking about baptism. Is everybody, everybody's excited. Okay, so, so we're going to talk about baptism today. What I wanted to do is I wanted to start out by reading four different baptism stories in the book of Acts and then just make a few observations, right? It's about the most straightforward way that we can start talking about baptism. So let's just dive in. So starting in Acts chapter 8. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, one of the apostles, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they, the Samaritans, were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So in this story, people believe the message about Jesus and are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. But when they are baptized, they don't receive the Holy Spirit immediately. That doesn't happen until sometime later when the apostles come and pray for them and then they receive the Holy Spirit. How long is the interval in between? Who knows? We read this and we assume it was probably like 15, 20 minutes later. But given that the internal combustion engine is still about 1,800 years away, it was probably a while. Days, weeks, maybe. We read a book not too long ago where it quoted a theologian as saying, the speed of God is three miles an hour because that's the speed that Jesus lived his life walking all around Judea and Galilee. <clears throat> Things did not move that fast back then. So who knows how long it was. All right, same chapter, just down a few verses. Acts 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come with him and sit with him. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is a fascinating story, to say the least. If you remember the story of Elijah and Elisha from last week, there are a lot of similarities between this odd little story and that story. It appears that there's almost an intentional mirroring taking place. But for our purposes, a man is baptized on the side of the road, and immediately the Spirit shows up and does something miraculous. Interestingly, it doesn't say whether the Spirit actually came upon the Ethiopian eunuch or not, just that it whisked Philip away and made him disappear immediately. Okay, two stories, same chapter. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 10. Only two chapters away. In Acts chapter 10, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, who lived in Caesarea, sent for Peter. And Peter, after having a bizarre dream about a sheep coming down from the clouds with animals on it, he comes to Cornelius' house and talks to his family about Jesus. And the story says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So, in this story, Peter is proclaiming the gospel, telling this Roman, this Roman military general, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And while Peter is still talking, still telling the story, before the centurion or anyone else even has an opportunity to fully respond to what he has said, the Holy Spirit just comes upon all of them. And after the Spirit comes, Peter's like, well, guess we may as well baptize him with water as well. And then he does it. All right, jumping forward a bunch of chapters. So by the way, three stories within two chapters or three chapters of each other all have very different stories, right? Very different patterns going on. And the authors of the Bible seem to be fine with that. Moving forward to Acts chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, well, what baptism did you receive then? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, but he told people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So here, Paul finds some disciples of Jesus. It calls them disciples, which means they were disciples of Jesus. But it seems that they didn't even know there was a special baptism 
of Jesus, nor that the Holy Spirit was accessible to them through Jesus. They just received the baptism of John, which is just straight up bananas fascinating. If you really think about it from a historical perspective, and I don't even know what it means. This is in Ephesus on the coast of Asia Minor. And somehow people there know about John the Baptist. And not only that, someone has been baptizing in John the Baptist's name. John has been dead for a hot minute at this point. But Paul's like, don't worry about it, fellas, we'll get you sorted, baptizes them in Jesus's name, and boom, the Holy Spirit shows up immediately. So, four stories, we've figured out the pattern, right? <laughs> there is no pattern. There is no secret recipe, no formula no magical incantation. And this is in scripture, people. This is biblical, acknowledging that there isn't a precise pattern or formula is biblical, right? The whole thing is messy and unpredictable. And the authors of the Bible seem perfectly okay with that. Each of these stories is really fascinating in and of itself. And it has each one kind of has its own unique symbolism going on. But they all share a couple features. First, each one is about inclusion. An African, a racial and ethnic other, not to mention a eunuch that Deuteronomy excludes from entering into the assembly of God. Samaritans, religious others, with a violent past who had been at war with the Jews for a couple hundred years at that point. A Roman general, a political other, matter of fact, a participant in their oppression. And people living in modern day Turkey, cultural others. All these stories are about bringing into the family of God, the people of God, people who once had been thought of as outsiders or even enemies. And the second thing they share is that, as I said, there is no formula. Getting the mechanisms and the timing right appears to have been no concern whatsoever to the apostles and the early church. So if we're fixated on those questions, there's a solid chance that we're missing the point. So what is the point? Glad you asked. From a historical perspective, the origins of baptism are really fascinating and quite frankly, a bit mysterious. First and foremost, baptism is not a Christian innovation at least it not, com not completely so. It was a Jewish practice long before John or Jesus ever emerged on the scene. Ritual immersion or mikvah in Hebrew was used for hundreds and hundreds of years for ritual cleansing, usually to purify people from ritual uncleanness so that they can 
continue to worship or enter into the temple. But around the time of Jesus, or at least in the second temple period, it began to expand in its meaning and importance. The Pharisees and the Essenes began using it as a conversion ritual, which is not something that we see in the Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds of mikvaot, little gatherings of water, little baptismal pools, have been excavated by archaeologists in the temple compound, showing that at times of worship, at festivals, probably thousands upon thousands of Jews were undergoing ritual immersion. So this was a common and popular thing at the time of Jesus. But Jesus and John seemed to take it to a different place. So baptism, first and foremost, is a fundamentally Jewish practice and idea, but Christianity transforms it and magnifies it in several interesting ways. As with everything with Jesus, tradition and innovation are both part of it. So Christian baptism, of course, finds its origins in Jesus' own baptism by John, the story that we read earlier, at least one of the versions of the story that we read earlier. When John came baptizing in the Judean countryside, as mentioned, what he was doing was not unprecedented, but he does imbue it with all sorts of new symbolism. He specifically chose to baptize near Bethany in the Jordan River. This symbolism would not have, been, not have been lost on his first century Jewish audience because back in the book of Joshua, this was the very location that Joshua put Moses' old staff into the water and the water stopped and the people were able to walk through on dry ground into the promised land. And if we can project ourselves back to that time, to the time of Joshua, the symbolism of that act would not have been lost on his audience either. Because one generation before, after hundreds of years of slavery and oppression, this is precisely what Moses did at the Sea of Reeds, splitting the waters and allowing the people to pass through into a new life and the Egyptian army being swallowed up in an ensuing flood afterwards. And if we could project ourselves back into Moses' time, the symbolism of that act would not have been lost on his audience either, because they would have immediately seen in this act of splitting waters and then the following flood coming afterwards to consume Egypt, the violent army following them, they would have seen echoes of the creation story in Genesis 1 with the splitting of the waters at the very beginning of creation and then echoes of the story of Noah and the flood when God has to wash away the violence that has polluted the world and humanity. And to come back to Jesus and John's time, all of this would have been confirmed by the presence of a dove in that story because both of those stories in Jewish tradition involved a dove. So when Jesus comes and is baptized by John, there is this fascinating like telescoping effect 
taking place in that act where all the main creation events in human history and in Jewish history, the creation of the world, then the creation of the Jewish people in a way in the Exodus, and then the creation of the Jewish nation as they enter into the land. All of these stories come together and find their nexus in this person of Jesus and his ministry and his life. And as he will proclaim soon, the kingdom of God coming near through him. You know what I find super fascinating about baptism in the Bible, in the New Testament, is that no one ever really bothers to explain it again after this. We get this incredible, remarkable story with all of this symbolism in it, symbolism that we might miss in the modern world because we're not that audience deeply enmeshed in the Old Testament scriptures, but all of this symbolism that they all would have gotten. And then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the resurrected Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody just assumes they know exactly what he's talking about. And then baptism is suddenly everywhere, everywhere, right? All those stories that we just read about in Acts, the assumption is that any time joins this family, this community, they're gonna get baptized at the beginning of it. Paul's letters talk about baptism. It is just everywhere. It seems like everyone just got it and they were kind of excited about it. Now, here's the point. Here's overall what I'm trying to say this morning. For the early church, baptism wasn't about what it did and how it did it in some mechanistic way. It was about what it meant. It was about the story, the stories and the story and all of the symbols in it. All those stories that find their nexus in the person of Jesus and in Jesus's baptism, all those stories are essentially about two things, new life and God's eternal story. Baptism is about acknowledging that for you, a new thing is happening, a new life, a new chapter, a new story, a new vocation. But, and this is incredibly important, that new thing is not your thing. That new thing is God's thing, a thing he's always been doing. This new life isn't about you. It's about your individual life being engulfed, pun intended, by God's amazing story. Baptism at its core is a beautiful sacrament that joyously proclaims that we are part of a story that spans all of human history from creation to resurrection and new creation. I mentioned that Curtis is spending some time with the youth and the kids today talking about some of this, and I want you to know the four main points that he's sharing with them in perhaps slightly different words. Here are the four points. Here are the things that we believe about baptism. First, baptism identifies us with Jesus in some profound, 
but mysterious way. It identifies us with the person of Jesus. In Romans chapter six, Paul says this, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In baptism, in some mysterious way, we die and raise again with Jesus. All those stories of creation, exodus, new life, they're just foreshadows of the ultimate story of new life, Jesus' death and resurrection. And in baptism, somehow, mysteriously, we are dying and rising to new life with him. Second, Baptism identifies us with the church. And by the church, we mean God's people and God's story across all space and time. Baptism isn't just about you and your soul. It's about becoming part of something bigger than you, something bigger than ourselves, being part of a body a community that spans all of space and time in purpose and vocation. And then third, baptism is incarnational, meaning that it's ultimately about the kingdom of God coming near, which is, of course, what Jesus started saying just after he was baptized. It's not just about what happens when we die, it's about living new life here and now. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Baptism means that we are living in the future creation while we're still stuck in this one. And finally, baptism is sacramental. And what I mean by that is this. Baptism is symbolic. It's symbolizing something, but it's also more than that. It's mysterious and spiritual in some way. Thinking of baptism as just a symbol or thinking of it as some sort of mechanistic, salvific thing are ironically both very Western dualistic ways of thinking about baptism because they're separating the material and the spiritual. But a Christian worldview is way too dynamic for that. Tangible physical acts like baptism and communion, they are symbols of spiritual realities, but they are also somehow pregnant with a wonder and a power beyond just those utilitarian functions. And there's no need for us to have to reduce that. The word became flesh. That's our whole deal, people. We are already way off the modernist reservation. We may as well just own it. So in summary, baptism the way I'd like us to see it, the way I'd like us to hold it, 
together is beautiful and it's mysterious. I am sorry if it has been cheapened for you. If it has been made something that you just can't even think about because of the poor or simplistic ways that it's been approached or talked about or practiced. But it is beautiful. It's a story as old as creation and also represents a new life beyond our feeble imaginations can even conceive. It's about creation and exodus and purpose and resurrection. May we, with baptism as with many other things, be part of a people that puts back together the things that have been wrongly pulled apart and make it beautiful again. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to the opportunity to practice the ritual, the sacrament of baptism again. We acknowledge that because of our shortcomings as human beings, as Christians in your church, that oftentimes some of these beautiful things like baptism and communion get reduced and the beauty is, is sort of drained out of them. But we pray that you would help us to maybe take a step beyond that, a step beyond the, the modern controversies and look back at the beauty of the original stories, the enthusiasm that those early apostles and disciples were about baptizing and being baptized and help us get caught up in the beauty of that, the story of it, and help us just to get caught up in the story itself. We love you and we thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.